thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Hello, Dr. Chris. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good morning. Can can I ask you, how come you're called the Naked Scientist to begin with? This is a purely scientific question, of course. Oh, I'll give you a purely scientific answer then. Uh, the answer is that it's the science that's naked, not me, heaven, heaven, for heaven's sake. That's the, that's the good thing, isn't it? Um, I mean, mind you, it is radio. But uh, no, if I, was, uh, if I was really naked, people really would probably be quite upset. <laughs> Welcome back, Chris. I, I hear you want to talk to me about immunology? Well, there's an interesting story doing the rounds this week. It's actually about multiple sclerosis, which is very common. And this disorder occurs when the immune system attacks a certain component of the central nervous system called myelin, which supports nerve fibres which run through the brain and spinal cord. And the loss of this myelin leads to disability. People have problems with their movement, with their vision, and various other aspects of the way the nervous system works. For some people, it's a relatively mild problem. For others, it can be intensely disabling. And there's a number of ways of controlling it, but most of them involve drugs with fairly unpleasant side effects. This week there is a paper in the medical journal The Lancet by researchers in Canada. This is Harold Atkins and his colleagues. They're at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. And what they have done is to, in a small group of patients, it's only 24 people who they've followed up, they have given them a bone marrow transplant. Now, it's slightly subtle, this. What they do is you take stem cells from a patient's own bone marrow, you then remove all of the immune cells and the bone marrow cells from that person's body. It's called bone marrow ablation. You then give them back their own stem cells again. They repopulate the bone marrow and they make new blood-forming elements and they also reconstitute a new immune system. Excuse me. And the idea of doing this, this is called an autograft, and it's quite familiar to haematologists, this practice. But what it does is it resets the immune system to almost like a zero state. Effectively, it's giving you back the immune system you were born with. And because multiple sclerosis is a condition you acquire through some ill-defined triggers or trigger later in life, if you go back to a time when you were born, you didn't have multiple sclerosis when you were born, so therefore, by default, you should be back to normal. And what they found when they followed up these people for three years after the transplant is that none of those 24 people, unfortunately one patient died, they started with 25 and one person died during the transplant, but the 24 who were followed up for three years, none of them had any further MS flare-ups, having previously been having at least one per year. None of them needed any drugs, and more than 50% of them showed clinical improvement in their MS symptoms. And these people were very severely disabled by MS previously or had very rapidly progressive disease. So this is uh, not a simple uh, undertaking to do what they've done, but it's certainly exciting for those people who have very severe disease and they appear to have had remission of their problems because of it. Yeah, that's amazing, Chris. I have a friend, in fact, who's uh, who's struggled with MS for many, many years. So <coughs> this is um, 
quite an exciting development. Thank you for that. I want to invite all, right. all of you now to, um, the lines are open. You can call the, the Naked Scientist with uh, your questions. If you have any science-specific questions for Dr. Chris Smith, please call me on 021-446-0567 or double one double eight three oh seven oh two. We have Andrew in Pretoria. Hello Andrew. Hello, hello Chris. Hi, I spoke to you some time ago. I want to put one more question today. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, everything that travels has a push behind it, like the bullet, the soccer ball, the cricket ball and everything. And there is a certain amount of speed according to the push behind it. Now, the light has no push behind it and is the fastest of everything as far as we know today. Why? <laughs> Hi, Andrew. Well, light certainly has momentum. And when, when we, you can think of, of light having a push behind it because something energetic had to make the light in the first place. For instance, in the sun, it's at very high temperature and there are atoms there which have electrons around them with a lot of energy and when those electrons change between a high energy state and a low energy state they give out photons, packets of light so there is a push behind the light. Light is an electromagnetic wave. What, what that means is that you have a disturbance in the electrical field which when you disturb an electrical field you get a changing magnetic field and if you change a magnetic field you get an electric field. And so this wave propagates through space at the speed of light. But because the particles, if we call them that, packets of light are massless, they can travel at the speed of light, which is our notional speed limit in the universe, uh, because nothing else can go that fast, because the faster you go, the heavier you get, and the heavier you get, the more energy you need to accelerate yourself. Therefore, uh, you would need an infinite amount of energy to speed up beyond the speed of light. Uh, light doesn't weigh anything, therefore it can travel at the speed of light. That doesn't mean it doesn't have momentum, though, and when the light impacts on something and gives its energy to the thing it hits, then you actually feel a push from the light. So it, it is hard to get your head around, but it's, it actually does make sense when you think of it in those terms. Hmm. Are you happy with that, Andrew? Oh, apparently he's happy. We, do we have another caller for, for the good doctor? We've got Bev uh, from Alberton. Hi, Bev. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask, Chris, um, I get migraines every time there's an electrical storm, but they usually start way before the storm's even here. And I wanted to find out if there's any connection between brain waves and electrical storm waves. Because hmm. um, I might hmm. not know I'm getting a headache and why, and then sudden a storm comes along, and then as soon as the storm's over, my headache's gone. Well, Bev, there's not any known connection between brain waves and electrical signals from electrical storms because uh, in terms of orders of magnitude, they're, they're grossly different from each other and the way they work is, is quite different too. But it's certainly true that people are sensitive to their environment and there are lots of conditions that go along with a, a forthcoming electrical storm. There will be pressure changes, there will be temperature changes, there will be humidity changes and all of these things can affect the way an individual behaves, they can affect the way that your body behaves and they can can affect other factors like how dehydrated you are, how stressed you feel and all of these factors can play into whether or not you get a headache. So it's certainly true that there may well be a connection between what the weather's doing and how you're feeling but I don't think it's a connection because of electrical signals from the electrical storm and the electricity in your brain. Okay. Thanks Chris. I think we're, we're just going to keep going. We've got another call from Richard in East Rand. Richard, Good do you morning. want to speak to Chris? Chris, 
Go um, ahead. Quick, quick, quick question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, what causes it? How far are we from getting, you know, getting a cure for it? Um, yeah. What causes and what, what Chris? Manage it. Parkinson. Parkinson's disease. Yes, well, this was very high profile this week, of course, because at the weekend we unfortunately witnessed the passing of Muhammad Ali. And he was said to be suffering from a Parkinsonian condition. Actually, probably his condition was more brought on by repetitive blows to the head and a so-called punch-drunk syndrome than pure Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease traces its origins to the early 1800s. I think it was 1817 when James Parkinson, after whom it's known, described in a paper to a medical journal uh, the shaking palsy. He noticed that individuals who happened to have this very stereotypical illness tended to have a stooped-over posture. They tended to have a mask-like expression. They spoke quite quietly. They also had this characteristic so-called pill-rolling tremor. If you look at the hands of a person with Parkinson's disease, often the, the thumb and forefinger re repeatedly roll backwards and forwards over one another. People also have sh have a stiffness and a rigidity and they they really struggle to get movements started. They know what they want to do. As one patient used to say to me, bloody legs won't go. I know what I want them to do and I think what I want my leg to do, but it just doesn't move. It's like the signal isn't getting through. When you look in the brain of a person with Parkinson's disease, you find that a particular portion of the nervous system, at least in the early phases of the disease, a region called the substantia nigra, which is in the brain stem, this region of the brain contains nerve cells which make the chemical dopamine. They send signals to a region of the brain called the basal ganglia, which is where movements are planned and executed. And dopamine appears to grease the wheels of that movement. It's the trigger that makes movements get initiated. People with Parkinson's disease, for reasons we don't understand, lose nerve cells in their substantia nigra, so they slowly lose dopamine from their brain, and the loss of dopamine means that they find it harder and harder to initiate those movements. And this is why people over time progressively develop the symptoms that I've described. At the moment, there's no cure for Parkinson's disease. There are drugs that can mimic the action of dopamine. There are drugs that can increase the half-life, the amount of time that dopamine spends in the system, which means you can get more more punch uh, or more um, sort of power for your, from your punch because you prolong the signalling of the dopamine. But at the moment, we can't reverse the loss of those cells. But scientists are exploring whether it's possible to put new nerve cells into the nervous system. And those nerve cells could be persuaded to make dopamine. And that would make up some of the shortfall. Okay. Let's carry on with another question from Rensha in Johannesburg. Rensha, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, Chris. Hello. Um, I just want to ask, a friend of mine's child of about 16 years old has been diagnosed with Job syndrome. Apparently it's very rare and there's only been um, a couple of instances in South Africa. What would be the best uh, treatment for it? Um, you know, just a little bit of background because we know so little about it. Can you tell me what the disease is called? Because I, I don't recognize the name. J-O-B, uh, like Job in the Bible, a syndrome. Um, apparently right. it is affecting children from a young age. 
Um, See, I don't know what this is, and I, I don't want to speculate because I, I don't know what it is. I mean, these very, very rare things um, that they are, they are extremely unusual, and they're they're a little bit off my radar. Can you tell me what sorts of symptoms your the affected individual has? Um, symptoms would be very bad eczema. Um, it would also be, um, you know, they're very. Um, prone for infections um, because it also uh, tackles the, the immune system. So um, from a very young age, normally <clears throat> they die because of an infection um, because they don't have right. any resistance to it. Right, okay. There's a number of things that, that are, a number of syndromes that are united in affecting the immune system and causing very severe immune impairment. I don't know what this one is, but it's probably one of that family of things. I, I will go and look it up for you, and I'll come back to you next week with um, a clear definition of what it is and what we think the, the best way of managing it is. Okay, thanks, right, Chris. thanks so much. Please keep, please keep those questions coming for uh, our Naked Scientist. You can call us on 21 or 11 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Right, you're back with me, Neo Muyanga, sitting in for Ridi Tlabi. We've got more questions for you, Chris, from Erica in Germiston. Hello, Erica. Hi, good morning, Dr. Chris. My, before my husband goes to sleep, his one leg bends and straightens and bends and straightens all the time. You can't stop it, but once he's asleep, it stops. What can he do to it? Well, it, I mean, it might be a manifestation of what, what people call restless leg syndrome, which is a defined neurological entity. And if this is something that happens reproducibly and stereotypically every evening, then it could be that. Um, the bad news is, if it is that, it's quite hard to stop. Um, apart from when, when you finally do get to sleep, you don't notice it anymore. Um, but it, it might be that, I mean, does he take any other drugs or medications? Because if it's happening at the same time every day, then sometimes um, these things can be a consequence of certain drugs. Pardon? Uh, he takes heart medications. Okay, because certain drugs, when they wear off... Um, there can be a side effect or, or, or when they're at high level because you've just taken them and one of the side effects can be changes in the way that oh. other bits of the body work just as a side effect so it might be worth looking if there's a pattern to uh, the timing that this happens and the timing that certain drugs are taken because it could also be a drug side effect but it may well be if it's not changed and it's been going on for, do for donkey's ages then it could just be um, that he naturally has restless leg syndrome Okay We've got... Uh Kathy next. Kathy from Sunningdale. Hi, um, thank you so much for an informative program. I really do appreciate the time to give up every week. Um, my question is that for the immune system um, and for, for young children and adults who frequently getting colds and flu and everything else that goes around, what are the three most beneficial things you can do to implement and boost the immune system? Oh, hi, Kathy. Well, if you didn't hi. want to catch anything, then, then you'd have to become a recluse and <laughs> live entirely isolated a from Michael the human Jackson. population. Uh, well, I suppose so, although it didn't do him much good, did it, really? But Because um, the, the, the downside of becoming a recluse is that whilst you may be microbiologically very fit and not suffer from too many viruses, you would probably yeah. nonetheless suffer from all kinds of psychological problems. Yeah. 
So we, we do need uh, social input. Um, the answer to your question is that a healthy lifestyle, a healthy diet and getting enough sleep are all the ingredients that are required. If you look at uh, the, the timeline of humankind, you'll see that long before doctors really came along with modern medicine, drugs, or even knew the causes of many of these diseases, that actually longevity had improved enormously and the burden of ill health and the childhood mortality that was being seen in many countries had fallen dramatically. And if you then ask what came directly upstream of those changes, what you see is that people had access to clean water clean living so there wasn't a sewer in the an open sewer in the street people had access to good nutrition and people weren't packed into overcrowded conditions because those are all the recipes for disaster if you have too many people living too close to each other viruses spread if people don't eat healthily and they don't drink the right things they drink alcohol in, in excess for example these things debilitate the immune system and so being being in a good environment is 90 percent of the equation i would say and um Fruit and vegetables, decent dose of fruit and vegetables every day provides you with the right micronutrients and having enough calories on board to, to make the immune system work because the immune system is millions of cells and when you fight off an infection, you're making millions of cells and proteins, your antibodies. That, that energy's got to come from somewhere. Okay. Thanks, Chris. We've got Paul in Durbanville. Hello, Paul. Hi. Hi. Uh, Go ahead. A, this is a, a sort of a interesting question. It's more physics than medicine. Um, the scenario is you have a vehicle traveling at 120 k's an hour on a highway and smacks into a concrete bridge and comes to a dead standstill immediately. And the other scenario is you've got two vehicles traveling at 120 k's an hour in opposite directions that have a direct head-on collision. Um, both vehicles weighing exactly the same, doing exactly the same speed. So for me, in both instances, the vectors become zero. But why do the newspapers keep reporting that if it's a head-on collision at 120 k's an hour, the force is 240 k's an hour? That's well, Paul, um, in, terms of, in terms of in terms of the, the, the best way of thinking about this, um, you've got to think of this in terms of momentum. Momentum is the mass times the velocity. Now, if we take the example of your truck going along, at let's call it 100, just for ease of, of calculation, the momentum is the mass which let's call the truck a ton, times the velocity, let's call that uh, 100 kilometers now. That would be 100 times 100, that in, expressed in kilometers now, for simplicity. So the momentum that's being transferred between that truck and the wall is 100 times 100. If you've got a truck identical to yours coming in the opposite direction, it's actually got the same momentum your truck does going the opposite direction so in fact um it's not just transferring that momentum going one way it's actually the momentum coming the other way as well you've got to add those two together so that the combined transfer of momentum is twice the size so actually it's worse to run your truck into someone else going the same speed you are the opposite way than it is to just run yourself into a wall um, whether or not you'd be around to afterwards to really appreciate the subtlety of the maths uh, is a different question i would say True enough. We've got Denise in Goodwood. Denise, hey. hi, Denise. Well, good go morning. Go ahead. Um, I had a condition, an eye problem. I saw an, an ophthalmologist who then did a surgery, vitrectomy a year ago. I had floaters and a tearing left eye. Um, the condition never, for the whole of last year, I had eight, infection about eight times and medication and drops was administered. I was advised to go for a second opinion, which I did. 
the diagnosis right now is uveitis. Is it something I should be worried about? And I'm, I'm scheduled for an angiogram of the eye sometime next week. Well, I'm really sorry to hear about your eye problems. What I will do is I'll catch this conversation by saying it's really bad to try and do on-air diagnoses because I'm not your doctor, I can't see you, I can't look at the problem and, and therefore have a, a terribly clear opinion because I, ca I can't do anything properly um, uh, by the book here. Uh, the only thing I can do is talk in very general terms, so I can't really comment on your individual case. And so please, people, don't, don't ring in with, with personal medical problems because it's not safe for me to try and operate like that. Um, what I will say is uveitis is inflammation of the front part of the eye, and it can be caused by a whole range of things. It can also be caused by, by viruses, and one of the viruses that can cause a sore eye is the herpes virus, which causes cold sores as well, and sometimes damage to the eye or surgery to the eye can trigger that virus to reactivate because it lives in the nervous system. And so it might be worth, if you have had a teary, watery, sore eye, it might be worth the... Uh, doctors who are looking after you swabbing the tears and seeing if they can demonstrate the presence of that virus there and some eye drops called acyclovir might help but there are a whole range of reasons why you could have these symptoms and it's really important that they're properly managed because sight is a precious thing okay let's go to costa in kilani hi costa uh hi chris uh, question hi costa for the big bang uh, yes uh, the question is on the big bang I just need to clarify something. My thinking tells me that the way that the Big Bang is uh, illustrated or, 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 uh, or graphically shown on TV screens or on books is basically a black space with a dot in the middle and there's an explosion, there's a sound and a light. And I think that none of those are correct. I think that that's a, a misnomer. It is correct because light was invented until about 7,000 years after the, uh, the Big Bang. When the, uh, when the when the universe had cooled down sufficiently to allow for the electrons to, to be released, so if you were fortunate enough to witness the Big Bang, uh, you were at a vantage point. You would neither see nor hear it. Is that correct? Well, you couldn't exist at the time of the Big Bang because the Big Bang yes, we, the, we say spawned our universe, and uh, the the Big Bang made the universe, and therefore there was no universe. And out of out of that infinitely tiny point with enormous amounts of energy comes the creation of the universe which then blows up like a giant bubble very very fast initially slows down a bit but is also accelerating in the grand scheme of things as it ages but yes you're right that the initial unleash of energy it was far too hot and far too energetic for particles as we know them as atoms to stay together atoms are glued together you have protons and neutrons bound together in the nucleus of an atom surrounded by a cloud of electrons and those atoms then assemble together to make bigger species like molecules and the things that make up the universe around us if you heat them up to a sufficiently high temperature give them enough energy in other words then you break the associations between those fundamental particles and you just get a soup of particles and that's basically what particle accelerators like cern do they ram things together at very high energies and this makes them fall apart into their component com subatomic particles so you're right that you would not see 
particles as we know it and what you would see is a huge amount of energy but the photons of light would be certainly beyond or, or there would be so high energy that uh, you wouldn't be able to see them in the same way that we see lots of nice colours today. You'd probably see a whole raft of different energies floating around um, but you, you wouldn't see particles like the hydrogen that dominated the universe after the Big Bang until the universe cooled down enough which didn't happen for quite a long time after the Big Bang so that the particles can then coalesce to actually form atoms. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.